I don't believe in no one's scenarios. Data, 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 I cannot make bricks without clay. I don't know where you get your delusions, laser brain. <laughs> Welcome to another Cheeky Scientist radio show. Very excited for today's show because we have on a former senior scientist at Genetech. So for those of you who are considering being a research scientist or a researcher in industry and you're wondering what the differences are between doing research in academia and research in industry, he is the perfect person to talk to. Uh, Elliot received his PhD from the University of South Florida. Uh, he has a lot to share with us today. Thank you for being with us, Elliot. Of course. Thanks for, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity to try and you know, share some of my experiences with everybody. I think one of the questions that uh, everyone listening to this who has not worked in industry yet has is, what is the difference between research and industry versus research and academia? And I think that's the first I think that's the first logical step for many of us to make when we start considering transitioning out of academia. We like, well, I do research now. I know nothing about industry. I know no other job titles, but I do know that they do research in industry in some positions and our mind, you know, tends to naturally go to R and D research and development. And so we start learning about and reading about R and D positions. Uh, but I think it's pretty, you know, pretty quickly for many of us, if we do any sort of, um, you know, research on what research is like is in industries, we, we notice that it's, it can be quite a bit different. There's more funding, for example. There's development. That's the D in R&D. Uh, so I guess my first question to you is, how did your view of research and industry change after getting into your role at Genetech? So what was it before you transitioned? And then how was it uh, different after you transitioned? Well, uh before, I guess, sort of like most people, I, I, I realized and I knew that, you know, again, research was being done in industry, you know, everybody does like something, you know, it has all this, you know, knowledge has to come from somewhere. There's no, they're just not pulling it out of thin air. But I didn't understand sort of how it was collected and how much of it was in the, the, the back end there. You know, I'm th thinking, well, in academia, we do all of the preliminary research, we do all of those things, like so much more research is being done in academia. But oh, nothing's being done in industry, sort of having this mindset. But then when I started applying and started interviewing and started actually touring different you know, industry sites and going to them, realizing that they're conducting way more research in industry than I was in, in academia. Not just like necessarily that in my role, I, I wasn't, but in, in general, they were because, you know, unlike within academia where most times you're the one collecting all of your data you might have some other ras and you might have some other you know phds who are working on different projects doing like this but each project that you're working on within industry has a, a team of people behind it that are collecting data underneath it who are collecting from you know multiple different facets you know you you can also potentially be collecting data from um, CROs or contract research organizations where they're collecting massive amounts of data. Certain sets are also then conducted with robotics that are collecting even more sets of data than, you know, your, your hand collecting in academia. And so just the massive amounts was just was mind boggling to me. It was like, oh, okay, now I'm just having so much more, you know, research is being conducted, you know, daily 
And, you know, it's not like scheduled out like as you do in academia, like, well, today I need to write, tomorrow I need to collect this set of data, you know, I got to get someone else doing this. Like, there's just data coming in every day in industry. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's a great point. And we hear that a lot. I and mean, so the scale is so much bigger. And the the financing is so much more you mentioned robotics and i remember walking through my first industry lab and seeing an entire uh room the size of uh i think 15 lab academic labs uh, based on you know where i was at in academia just full of robotics not a single person in there just the the, the these robotic arms and these robotic pipetters uh were just running uh, uh, these huge sequences all by themselves. And like, and I think you mentioned CROs as well, contract research organizations. A lot of companies now partner with uh, these labs that specialize in certain types of techniques. So lots and lots and lots of data. Uh, so understanding that scale, I think, takes a while. Uh, and so if you can start thinking about that now before you transition, you can see how things might differ, right? Because if if your value is not being the pipetter, if your value is not being the one to collect the information on the ground, and we'll get more into this because, you know, there's people with their bachelors or masters or other technicians, you know, there's the, there's the robotics, the CROs, there's uh, staff that might be beneath you as a PhD. I think this can help you start to understand what your value actually is in academia, in research, which is your mind, your ability to plan the experiments, uh, your ability to manage the experiments. So can you talk a little bit about that, Elliot? How, how were you trained to do this? This is something usually I think in academia, it's a role you don't really step into until you're kind of a, a higher level professor when you have a larger, a very large lab, right? And you're just the one, only, you know, your sole job is to kind of manage and plan the experiments at a very high level. Um, you know, if you're lucky, you might be just writing grants and trying to get money. But once you got into industry for you, what did that look like? How, how did your transformation occur where you went from seeing yourself as, you know, I guess from being the normal academic kind of technician, doing the experiments, like you said, doing something on a much smaller scale to being the one managing these larger experiments and coordinating. What did that look like? What did you do day to day? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a, that's a, a great sort of you know, question, and it, it, it is, and, it, and a good way of, of describing that is how you said is, you're basically starting to take on more of that, that PI role, you know, and you are then in charge of usually multiple different, you know, projects, you know, coming through from, you know, multiple different areas, and this isn't just necessarily at like a, a company like I was at Genentech. I know other PhDs who went to some of those, those CROs and what they're doing is the PhDs are again in charge of getting the information from whoever they're, they're contracting with, helping develop the, the protocols for the experiments, making sure everything is set up. And then they're also, you know, instructing a team of people to collect the data there. They're then filtering that data, verifying that all the people who are collecting it at the CRO are doing it correctly, taking that data and then sending it to someone else at the, you know, the, the company that's hired them out, someone, you know, like within my role, I'm collecting that, I'm then getting that data from them, having other people under, underneath us verifying these things for assays, you're, you're then collecting even more sets of data from other people, and just basically verifying that it, it's all correct, and you're, you're doing this in multiple different projects, and so you are like a PI where there's not necessarily just 
your one project that you're focused on. You're having to focus on multiple different projects, multiple different, you know, avenues of this being collected because you're now not just the, the one person running and doing the like the you know the in vitro assays. You're getting the in vitro, the in vivo data sets, you're getting you know, things from, um, from chemistry, getting things from, you know, metabolite formation, you're getting like all these different sets of, you know, information and data are coming in from all these different areas and these different facets and having to then go through and, you know, combine all this stuff to make one larger set of information to pass on. And you're not doing this for just one project. You're doing this for multiple projects simultaneously. So you're going through and having a lot more that you're having to, you know, to, to juggle at one point in time to maintain, you know, that the information stream is going through correctly and in a, you know, a, a rapid and understandable fashion. Yeah, and I think, you know, we've talked about scale and we're kind of talking about scope now too. You know, you know you're starting to break things down into the different types of really transferable skills that are required. A, a lot more organization in terms of the project management, a lot more coordination. Uh, in terms of people, data, results, et cetera. Can you help us understand, I guess, the workflows a little bit? You know, number one, how did you stay organized at Genetech? I mean, what was, you don't have to give like the names of the software or whatever else, but you know, was there a project management software that you used? How did you manage the different projects? How many different projects, you know, ballpark did you have going on at, at any given time? What was the workflow for the project? Would you like, you know, get data in and then, uh, have to put it together in a certain way to achieve a certain result and then check in with uh, people that are, you know, at uh, more executive level positions, anything that you can help us unpack there? Yeah, no, that's, um, that's great. So a lot of it, you know, and it is different, you know, um, like with the Genentech, we had a, a software that we had, you know, created that we used like in our internal interweb um, in our internet. Um, that we utilize to keep track of like where different projects were at different stages and you know who they're being assigned to and which group has the data set and you're coming through. And so that was one of the sort of the, the softwares that you have to go through and, and utilize and it, it helps keep track of that and then internalizes the data as well. Um, so you're going through with those sort of things, but then, you know, sort of as the, the role in there is, you'll usually have when you move into sort of like a more senior scientist sort of position, you then are going to have these um, one main project that you are sort of the, the advocate for that, you know, you're collecting multiple different sets of different, you know, different compounds that are coming in there. Which of these is the, the, the top compounds, best compounds, you know, coming through. You have people underneath you who are collecting all of that set of data, you know, running different analytics on those to, to go through and get the compound filtering it down, giving this then to you, but that you, you're having one major project that you're on while doing several others. You have your, you know, you're going to have your hands in smaller pots as well, or you, you can sometimes paint on the, the size of the company and doing that like at Genentech, you know, you, you usually are having, you know, one major, you know, focal point that you're doing, but that can also have, if there's, you know, say something is, for uh, oncology and you're you're targeting one specific gene you might also then have like three or four other subsets of that gene that you're also working on that have different sets of data coming through there within some other things that you're um you're you're working on the side that then could potentially become prioritized as well depending on how the project's going so you're going to have one that's you know coming more towards a 
final stage, um, others that are moving through the pipeline, so they, they're not as high in the priority at that point in time. But as things go, like you, you never, you, you have to be prepared for things to, to change because you can go over and that one project that you had is your, your lead compound, your lead thing, something from some other, you know, department, say from, you know, toxicology or from production, you know, something else that outside of your control can then, you know, stop that, you know, project and you have to be prepared for that to happen. And then something else can be jump up and become more important because all of a sudden, you know, there's, there's great leads on it. Uh, uh, something amazing happens with it. So you have to be able to juggle these things and keep, you know, these all in track. And as you're discussing with, you know, senior leadership, um, and going over and giving the presentations and doing discussions with all the other different, you know, department groups. And as information is being, you know, correlated through all of these, having to go through and know like what stage of the project each of these is in, you know, where the data is coming from and how they're, they're moving along through the different sets of pipelines. Because, you know, when you're doing all these things in like the preclinical, there's a lot of different other steps in there and then it's going to continue to move on before, you know, are you going to potentially be filing for, um, you know, the patent on this and filing for FDA um, regulation soon or in, you know, where are all these things at? So there's multiples that so you're doing and going through lots of different departments and groups that you're having to, to manage at one time. Yeah. And so I just want to call attention to a couple of key differences that Elliot's discussed so far. Uh, the first one is, is that you're dealing with data that you are not collecting. <laughs> and that might seem obvious, but in academia, usually we collect the data and then we uh, analyze our own data and that's it. You know, maybe we go a little bit beyond that and somebody else is helping collect data in the lab or, you know, obviously we're looking at past data, but here the, the so much data is coming in and, and most of it uh, for a PhD level job uh, in research and industry is, is not yours. Um, so, there are going to be a lot more systems and standard operating procedures in place. There, there might be uh, more data cleaning or data wrangling to use kind of uh, some of more of the, the newer buzzwords. And then the other thing that Elliot said is you're dealing with a lot more people, a lot more, it's a lot more team oriented, which has the benefit of allowing for larger projects to get done faster, like the amount the progress you can make in industry now because of that and also because of the, the, the funding and the instrumentation, the robotics, et cetera, things are just going to move a lot faster. Uh, and there's going to be a lot more checkpoints and you're going to make progress uh, better because of that. Uh, of course, you're going to have to coordinate more and the you know chains of communication, again, standard operating procedures become more and more important. Uh, what did you enjoy the most about your transition after getting into industry? Like what, I guess kind of surprised and delighted you in terms of, you know, finally getting into a, a position in industry where you, you know, you, you were respected and you did have a lot more resources and you were finally a part of a, a team and people were, you know, I would say one of the things we hear a lot is that, you, you know, in general, happier in industry, right? Because I think in academia with the way things are now, everybody's, you know, begging for funding so much and it just becomes a very critical environment. But for you personally, what really kind of delighted you after your transition in, into R&D in industry? Yeah, no, that's, um, that's, a, that's a great question. And I appreciate that a lot. And, and it is one of those things that, as you said, 
you switch over and you do have to start utilizing a lot less of your, you know, data collection skills. And then you, you switch over to a lot more of that communication and then you, you are, are, are valued. So one of the things that was probably, I guess, more, most surprising and like initial shocking to me was I didn't been in the company very long when we were having to change up, as you said, a, you know, SOP of staying operating procedure. There was, you know, some data had come in from, you know, from a CRO and we're like, okay, we're going to have to potentially change up one of our, um, our models. Like some of this is, you know, this potentially is going to lead to, to long-term, you know, changes within the company. And so we put together a team and we're like, we need to come up with, you know, how to switch up this SOP uh, quickly. And what's the recommendation that we have for doing this in a streamlined manner. And I got placed onto this team uh, with only having been a part of the company for a few months. And you know, all of a sudden it's like, no, we want Elliot on here. He's got this sort of knowledge in this background. And it's like, oh wait, you, you know, you've got all these other people who are, are, you know, as I would think senior to me, like they have so much more knowledge. They have all this thing. It's like, no, you've got knowledge in here too. We value you. We want you to come in and give your input as well. And those sort of, those sort of things of being actually appreciated like that is just really, you know, it feels really good. <laughs> you know, cause yes, you you might get some of that within your academic lab, but your PI is not usually always going to say, oh, yes, that's correct. You're that great, great job, you know, and it's just sort of nice to actually get those sort of recognition on, you know, on a, you know, on a, on a basis there that you know, feels, you know, good. So you, you see that so much more in industry, I felt, or at least I did. You know? Yeah. And then, I, I, no, and I just want to say, you know, this is really where culture comes in. Culture is how things get done. So regardless of what you're trying to achieve in academia or what you're trying to achieve in industry, right? In industry, it would be like a, your corporate strategy or corporate goals. The, the in-between, how you achieve those goals is very different. How in terms of process, right? Whether it's the meetings, the chains of communication, the standard operating procedures or lack thereof in academia, but also how you just, how you feel and how people work together as a team and, um, reward each other with respect and recognition without it being seen as a bad thing, right? In academia, very often, uh, we think a critical environment is somehow intelligent, but being critical has nothing to do with being intelligent. It's really just being critical of your data and of your work kind of bleeding over into being critical of a person, which is not right because you don't need to avoid confirmation bias uh, with a person you do with data. And, and so industry just has really excelled in, in the past 50, 60 years at this of being able to create teams, uh, especially in a lot of these STEM uh, industries where you would get into R&D, uh, create these teams and these environments to increase communication flow, allow for creativity, individuality, and, and respect and recognition, um, while still producing really, really good data and really, really good uh, treatments and products and services. Um, anything, any final thoughts on that topic, Elliot? Yeah, I would say one thing as you sort of alluded to, one of the things that I, I, I know that it's going to be different within each company and each aspect, but like, yeah, there is, there, is, there is a little bit of a balance between meetings and I felt like in academia, you have so few and you're, you know, a lot of times being on the sides of your lab, you're, you know, if you're a small lab, maybe you can actually meet with your PI regularly in a large lab. You might never meet with your PI. I had um, other friends who 
basically did their entire PhD under the postdoc and like met their PI like twice, you know, and once was basically at their defense, you know, like not seeing them. But then within industry, you might be a little too often sometimes the meetings, but that also depends on the structure of the company and how that that's set up, you know, and there's always working on how to, you know, to, to work to find that find that balance of, you know, how can we, you know, manage meetings properly. And that was also one of the things that we were doing through Genetech is like trying to make sure like, is this meeting actually necessary? Do we need to be having it? Do we need every just because you're invited to this meeting that doesn't mean you have to show up because if it's something that's not necessarily going to be impactful or you know meaningful for you is it necessarily worth your time to stop what you're doing to go do this meeting so you know there is a balance there mm-hmm. somewhere with way too little sometimes in in academia to companies having way too much in industry yeah and that's a, a good uh, point to transition to my next question because i do also want to talk about the challenges so what, what were some of the challenges, uh, you know, that I would call good challenges in terms of you having to shift gears and grow into a certain transferable skill or something new that was difficult for you after your transition? And then what challenges maybe, you, you know, were a bad challenge as in something you had to do more of that you just didn't like? You know, maybe it was meetings, maybe it was more email, whatever else, and this might just be personal preference, but I'm, I'm curious from kind of the, you know, the positive growth challenges, but also kind of negative challenges just to be fair about working in industry versus academia. Yeah, I guess one of the the biggest things, I guess, was like sort of a, an initial challenge for me. And I feel like this has happened to a lot of people when they first initially you know, transition over is sort of that, I guess it's the, the imposter syndrome type thing, you know, feeling, am I good enough to be here? Like, should mm-hmm. I be here? And I think that that ended up being really prevalent for a lot of people, unfortunately. But the thing is, is you're like, oh, I don't have all this experience. All these people have done this before. And it happens the same thing within academia. I mean, at least I did personally. It was like going through in the meetings, like, oh, well, you know, the PI and, you know, everybody on my board, they know so much more than me, you know, and going through. And you have to go and realize that, like, you are the, the you know more about this data than anybody else and you just have to, to own that and the same thing transitions over into industry as well like yes these other people have experience but like you have fresh ideas and you have fresh knowledge and you have you know a, a fresh set of eyes and fresh experiences that they haven't coming into the company and being able to see and question some of these things and you know like going through and you know bringing in new new ideas and new methodologies and new things and that was one of the other things i came i came into was like okay i now need to own like let's switch over some of our our modeling you know techniques because this actually could work so much better than what we're doing now and just having to to own that up and and know that was somewhat troubling at some points in time and you know having to get myself you know to, to believe in myself in that aspect was one of the most difficult things sometimes. And then, you know, yes, it was with the meetings and I, it's going to probably be for everybody else. And that was one thing is I personally on the spectrum and maybe a little more introverted and in within, you know, industry, you can't really hide behind the filing cabinet like you can within academia. And that was one of the things that was a little more difficult for me in that sense of having a lot more, you know, personal interaction with people. And that's obviously going to be different for everybody, you know, 
But I feel like sometimes you do have a lot of researchers come through who aren't as necessarily outgoing, which, you know, you might not be able to tell via, you know, the, me talking here on the, on the, on the radio, but sure. you know, in person, it sometimes is a little bit different for people. And that's something that, you know, personally I had to overcome and, you know, so I didn't mind the emails and things and, you know, transitioning to the, the work at home a little bit here with quarantine before I, uh, I, I left Gentech was like, oh, this is not so bad, um, you know, but it's obviously going to be different for everybody in those sense. And some people I know really struggle with, with that and others love it and really excel. Yeah, and I, I do appreciate what you what you talked about at the beginning. Uh, there was, you know, imposter syndrome is something that is normal. It, it's, it never goes away. That little voice in your head, especially for those of us in research who have to live in our head a lot because we're processing and we're analyzing so much, we become familiar with that voice that is a great guide Right. And, and really has to do with our knowledge base where right? we're going through, you know, lots of data and you start to notice a trend, but you're not quite sure what it is. And it's in the background of your mind. And then it comes to the forefront and then you have that idea or you finally recognize that pattern and you have a way to explain it. That that ability, some people call it, you know, intuition, but really it's just based on, you know, hours and hours. Right to the 10,000 hour rule or whatever else of, of looking at data and being able to see patterns and formulate ideas, et cetera. That strength can also be a great weakness because you might have a, a general background feeling that you're not quite ready for what you're trying to do. Of course you're not, because this might be your first industry job. You might feel like a little bit of anxiety and that anxiety uh, will make you want to pull back a little bit. You, you'll feel like an imposter, but you're not. You're just you're transitioning. It's your first industry job. Uh, you can do it. You're able to figure it out. And as soon as you uh, integrate yourself into the, the company and the culture and you talk to people, uh, it becomes easier. So one thing you know, that we always recommend is when you onboard, don't silo yourself. Don't stay by yourself. Meet as many people as you can. Really get involved in the onboarding activities. Don't go through a period of a deep observation you know, in, in an introverted sense, just by kind of being quiet and checking out how things are, like force yourself to really uh, get out there and experience every part of the company that you possibly can. Um, really, really important to do because as Elliot has been talking about, there's a lot of coordination and project management, et cetera, that goes on and you need to learn, you know, the how, the, the, the culture aspect of the company. Uh, so you got into a company that I think most PhDs have heard of Genetech uh, because they do have a, a, a very high standard in terms of the, I guess it's more of the academic minded industry companies. So I think a lot of PhDs are like, oh, Genetech would be great to work for because it's the most similar to academia in that sense, even though it's so different uh, because they still value publications, et cetera where a lot of companies, uh, most companies in industry, in fact, don't really look at that. So I do want to talk about, you know, what publication looks like in industry uh, as well. But first, I want to talk about, you know, how Genetech got on your radar and how you ended up transitioning into this role, especially with no industry experience. I know you had some, some particular challenges. I know you even had to face rejection in your job search, which I know a lot of listeners have faced or, or certainly will face because it's normal in your job search. So what did it look like? Can you describe, you know, what motivated you to finally make your transition out of academia? Was there a particular kind of point or, or really tough time you went through 
where you finally said enough is enough, I'm going to make this transition happen? And then what were the initial stumbling blocks you had in your job search? And then how did you finally end up uh, transitioning? What was your kind of uh, your, the, the turning point? Yeah. Um, I think that I, you know, going through and, and realizing and seeing all the, 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 the stress and struggle that I was going through, you know, finalizing and getting my PhD, pushback from my PI, trying to get papers published, doing all that was, you know, was really just sort of frustrating. It was like, I don't want to have to deal with this. But also, I think some of the, the one of the, the turning points for me was just seeing some of the other postdocs who were, you know, in our, my lab and other joint labs who were, you know, at the point of basically being lifetime postdocs, like, you know, some of them going over who had been postdocs for over a dozen years, and they're looking like there's no light at the end of the tunnel for them, and others being, you know, like, I just needed, you know, to do this long enough to work within here so I can get some loan forgiveness and I, I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to suffer on and, and do this until I can get out of here. And others like, oh, I, I want to go over, I want my own lab and I need to get this grant funding on here and, and this, you know, getting rejected, you know, you know, time after time again and just seeing how they were all so, you know, struggling so hard, which is sort of like, this is, I don't want to go down this path myself of just being beaten down daily. I, I, I see this, I'm surrounded by it. It's so disheartening because you're seeing so many other people who are really great people, really smart people who are just being, you know, pushed back and, and, you know, not being able to excel so, so often, even though they are deserving of so much more than they're getting. And so I'm like, all right, I'm I'm going to move into industry. At least I'll be I'll be valued there. And I, at that point, was still sort of, I guess, mindset pigeonholing myself into, all right, I you know I have a, a PhD in biomedical engineering. My focus is auditory neuroscience, so I need to find an auditory neuroscience job. Realizing, pretty niche. There's not a lot of opportunities out in there. And so going through and found one, found opportunity, you know, was really great, really excited to, to you know, to, to have this opportunity, really pushed, telling people they accepted my CV because it was actually a, a startup, so they had just come out of, you know, being founded by two PIs out of, um, you, um, out of two different universities up in the Boston area, so they still, you know, had that mindset of having, you know, okay, CVs are fine, which, you know, thankfully, I was able to get through that process there. When did the on-site and just did my normal sort of academic presentation, just interact with people. Interactions seemed great, but then I, I get a rejection and now was able to, you know, thankfully tease out because I, I went and I did meet basically the entire team. It was a very, it was a startup, small, small group. Got was able to tease out that they just, I didn't have that business acumen. I just didn't have like the, the, the why aspect of the, of the research, like, where's this going to go? What is the impact going to be? And like, I don't know how to do that. Where am I going to go with this? Like, what, what am I going to do? And so it's just sort of really st stuck. And I'm like, all right, well, I've now exhausted every industry opportunity for auditory neuroscience. Like there's nothing I can do. Does this mean I, I also now need to go down this, you know, this long, arduous travel of being a postdoc for the rest of my life and never being able to get out of this this hole, and you know, got pretty dark and and sad, and 
that's sort of when I finally jumped in and said, all right, I'm going to finally, you know, join, you know, you know, the CSA. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to do it. There's, there's got to be something can help me out. You know, I'm doing all this research and finance. Something's got to, you know, lead me to the next step. Right. And, and before we get to the next step and, and kind of what you initially tried and, and how you successfully transitioned, I, I do want to speak to, you know, the people uh, listening who have not reached that total moment of despair. It, it's, it's a simple fact, and we see it over and over again with thousands and thousands of PhDs, that uh, they, they don't act until moderate pain becomes severe pain. And so Elliot just did a really, really good job of articulating, you know, how the dial got turned up from moderate pain to severe pain. In academia, the, your best case scenario is moderate pain because you're paid so little and you're so overworked. And a strength that we have as PhDs is that we love challenge and we thrive in challenge. And so we have a very high threshold for psychological pain. In fact, we enjoy it. We put ourselves in very rigorous situations on purpose. Um, so it, unfortunately though, the, just like every, you know, I talked before about how strength can become weaknesses or also weaknesses. It's a weakness for us because things have to get really, really bad for us to finally change. And I don't want that to happen to you. So a big part of what, what we do at Cheeky Scientist, why we spend so much time doing radio shows and, uh, and, and webinars and training and why we talk so bluntly about the shortcomings of academia um, we know it can sound harsh at times, but it's still the truth. You know, we have a lot of people who say, oh, you're just bashing academia or doing this. No, no, we're putting at the forefront the, the facts and how bad and how dire things are in academia so that you don't have to wait to actually experience uh, the most intense, painful moment yourself. Even if we can pull back, uh, you know, help you save a few months of time in intense pain in academia, that's a win for us. So we, we want, we're sharing this with you so that you know what's ahead. And by seeing what's ahead, you'll hopefully experience, uh, at least through, you know, forethought or foreshadowing what that pain will be like, and you'll make plans to transition or to take your career into your own hands sooner. So, you know, that was the, you know, you got to that point of extreme pain, Elliot, and then you started learning, you know, you joined the, the Cheeky Scientist Association, our flagship uh, program. Uh, and through that, you, you started to learn the, the transition process. So I, I want to talk about, you know, what were some of the initial stumbling blocks you still had? Uh, you know, I know you, you know, some, for some people, it's the process is there, but we still kind of think we're above the process or we don't really want to commit to it. Uh, so we try different things. Some of us have to face rejection. We don't know how to handle that. So what were the initial stumbling blocks even after making that decision? And I want you to explain those because I want everybody to know that's normal. You make a decision, you start to change, but it's going to be, you know, it's, you're going to have some lessons you're going to learn early. And then I want to talk about how you, you know, transitioned and what the, what the turning point was to getting your offer. No, um, definitely. And I, I want to also just sort of like reiterate one of those things that like, yes, as you said, and I, I might have, you know, made light of just sort of like how dark a spot sometimes people get into. And I, I know I got pretty, pretty dark myself before going through and, and switching over and, you know, without going into some of the details, you know, pretty, you know, pretty bad. And I, and I know, and I've seen a lot of other people mm -hmm. get to that point as well, where it's, 
you know, you're really, really depressed. And that's why we want to try and realize that you can get out of there before then. And so that was really a, a turning point for me. And, and I know we've been doing a lot more. And I wish at that time when I joined a little over two years ago, like two and a half, three years ago, had been doing a little more of these, like pushing out there a little more. I know we're still doing it, but it's like not as, you know, not as out as there is there now. And I wish I'd seen it before, come across it then. But joining was going through and, and you know, some of the, the stumbling blocks, I think, at least, at least for me, was was trying to go through. And my biggest sort of stumbling block or, you know, issue was really trying to believe in myself, my, like, transferable skills, believing in myself, all those other things that I had that would be valued in industry. I was able to do, and I know that it varies for everybody what's, what they can and, and can't, you know, do well. Like, Doing the networking portion for me, I, I jumped in full, you know, headlong into that and, and, and was great doing that, but it was believing in my sort of transferable skills, believing in the skill sets I had. I had to really, you know, wrap my mind around and believe that, okay, I have these, you know, project management skills, I have these communication skills, I have these, you know, these things, these, these soft skills, the things that industry values. Yeah. And let me just jump in real quick because that, you know, those examples are important. So project management skills, uh, you know, client facing skills, communication skills, uh, transferable soft skills, interpersonal skills are all talked about, but uh, you know, all of you should also know, especially if you've never heard us talk about transferable skills, research, analysis, innovation, so it's almost just like vocabulary words for the more general skills that you have is the best way to define it. Sure, you have some very specific skills in engineering or in the life sciences or you know, physical sciences, chemistry, social sciences, whatever your background is, very specific techniques you've learned. Those are valuable, but most hiring managers, recruiters who don't have PhDs, they don't know that, that nomenclature. And overall, it's the the foundational skills that give rise to those anyway. Like it's your foundational research skills, your foundational analysis skills um, that transfer from industry to industry, that transfer from academia to industry, that transfer and make you so, like the, your, even your ability to process information faster, your ability to do a, a, a larger volume of work or transferable skills, highly valuable, that should give you confidence um, if you can just stop seeing them as basic. Like we think project management, oh, it's too basic, doesn't have a complicated word in there, not valuable. Uh, but it, once you realize it's highly valuable and most people in the world, most job candidates, especially those without PhDs, don't have those skill sets not nearly at your level, it'll give you that confidence that Elliot's talking about. So you, so you learned, you know, these transferable skills gave you confidence. You learned how to speak them, right? You almost kind of retaught yourself uh, a new vocabulary, a new way of talking, like the language of industry. What other changes did you make that really, really put you ahead in terms of your transition? Yeah, no, that's um, great because it was a, a lot of believing it because what it was is I, I didn't fully invest in those, those other transferable skills and doing that. And so I thankfully had some, some communications with like some recruiters and the people who were like, basically would ask me all the time, what does that mean? Like, oh, yes. this is, what, what is, what is that? What did you do? And so happened to describe <laughs> through and it's like, okay, yeah, you don't want the details of like the technical skills that I did and how I did that. Like you want to know like what, what is that? And like the wording and 
nomenclature that like everybody can understand. So I, you know, I, I was able to get my, my mindset wrapped around that. And then, you know, going through and then interviewing people, doing informational interviews, going through and like researching all the different companies and going through like there's, there's so many different places I, I can actually take these skills and, and, you know, then utilize them at. You know, I still initially had a little bit of, of struggle thinking, okay, I, I have to maintain within like auditory neuroscience, like maybe I can do something else like semi-related and within was able to really switch over and it's like, okay, I can do all these other things. I can do any sort of neuro thing. Oh, wait, because like a lot of my research was based on um, um, peptide modulation, like I, you know, an ion channel, I can, there's like, I can do all these other different things because what I learned doing this is I can, I can take those skills and, and take them anywhere. And so was then able to go through and just started, you know, interviewing so many other companies to decide which one would be the, the best for me. So I, I went over and then instead of going through and applying through, it's like, I went through and, and sort of, you know, contacting people to all the different companies in different places because I wanted to then find, you know, all right, I know I'm a great candidate now. I believe in myself. Now I'm going to find like a, a place that I'm going to like to be at. I want to be at. Um, and that's, and that it, that's it right there. That is that turning point, that moment that we want all of you to get to where you realize in a, you know, you to use a metaphor, the ball is in your court or you're in control. Your career's in your own hands. You're now not selling yourself to any bidder, to any taker in terms of a career. You're making the company sell themselves to you. You're seeing it as no matter how the economy is, because you're a PhD and you're in the top 1.6% of the population in terms of education and really your overall skills, you get to cherry pick the careers that you want. You're, you're identifying, you're, you're choosing your own targets instead of approaching things from kind of this you know, we call it with resumes, spray and pray, right? Just put your resume out there everywhere, uh, email everybody, be desperate. No, now you're specifically cherry picking the positions that you want. You have specific targets. You have that confidence. Uh, you can think of it as a sense of certainty in knowing your worth and your skills. It's why we always say, remember your value as a PhD, because we forget it. We get into the weeds too much. You zoom out a little bit, you can see the entire forest, not just individual trees, the forest being all of the transferable skills that you have, how they're integrated together, all that you've done and accomplished, and really how far above other job candidates you are now in terms of just intelligence, innovation, work ethic. And you're thinking, okay, I am an incredible job candidate now. Uh, you know, this, I get to choose these top positions. I don't have to accept something that I'm not a good fit for. And I don't have to accept pay, you know, the same pay rate as somebody with their bachelor's or master's. Now, I know you had a very specific rejection that I think you already alluded to because you were talking, you know, in terms of specific technical skills. Um, can you talk just a, a little bit about that? Only because I want everybody to know you, if you have a rejection or two in your job search, it's okay. You can learn from it. So what, just talk a little bit about what that rejection was once you hit that interview stage and then how you learned from it. Yeah, that, that rejection was really, it, it helped me to, to switch over and 
really understand a lot more of the, the differences between the academic and in industry because within academia you're always going you're you're taking ownership this is my stuff this is great because i can do all these technical skills i can do all these these you know these techniques i can collect all this data i can do all these things and so actually i'd interviewed through and got into the process but it was before i switched over and was able to go and start talking to how I could impact the company and I could push their research forward and how I could bring, bring, I could bring value to the company, not just the set of, it was more than just the set of techniques I knew how to do, how I could collect the data going through with it. It was more of once I was able to sort of shift over that, you know, that presentation of myself in a way of, I can, bring all these things and help push the science forward because I have these skills, because I've done it before, because I have the desire and the drive to do so. That sort of, once you, I, I was able to, to switch over into that sort of style of presenting myself, I was then, you know, getting offers that I was able to then start leveraging off of each other um, because I'd switched over to you know, I guess is, you know, said that belief in myself and, you know, selling, you know, and having the company sell themselves to me after I was like, okay, I now I'm, I'm more than just the techniques I know. I'm more than just, you know, this, this tool bag of, you know, technical skills. I have all these other things. And so was then having, you know, going through and, and, and having, you know, switched over my presentation style to that then it turned around to having just you know interviews coming in people wanting me you know offers and then being able to play them off of each other in a much almost too rapid of a fashion yeah yeah no and that's a great it's a it's exactly the the route that all of you want to follow that's the end point you want to be in is having multiple options we call them in negotiation batness you know best uh, alternative to uh negotiated something <laughs> but basically it's it's important for you to know that if you have a, a alternate an alternate offer is that your negotiation position is uh multiple times stronger and that's something that might seem very far away for a lot of you but you heard elliot again articulate just very well the, the process he went through both mentally and both uh, tactically in terms of what kind of things he needed to change in his transition to get uh his job at, at genetech now, two last things I want to talk about, Elliot, is, you know, what, what, are, the, what are the different positions within R&D? You know, we talk about these a lot at Cheeky Scientist. I know there's some new ones, you know, technical development, et cetera. Can you help us just get an understanding for how, how this depart, the departments at most of these companies now are structured? What are some of the job titles? How do they interact with each other? And then finally, the, the career trajectory of someone who would get into a a researcher role in R and D. So, so first, what are what are some of the lateral positions? What are some of the other position titles within this department, and how did what's the interplay between them? Yeah, um, most of the things is for a lot of the companies you're going to have some sort of lateral set of you know scientist you know, and and the the the, the titles are going to change, and which is one of the things that is very frustrating within. Um, R&D is one title of one company can mean something completely different in another company. But 
And so you want to, when you are looking at them, look at a lot of the, the skills requirements and the, the role requirements that they're going to have you do. But it's basically some sort of, you know, scientist, researcher, you know, level one to, you know, senior principal, like interchangeable. And then, you, then you'll start going over into being, you know, shifting into like management roles and, you know, some sort of then director, you know, subdirectors, VP sort of roles. And so what it just is, is you start off depending on how many, how many people are underneath you and how much of a senior seniority you have in the decision making of first a project versus then direction of the company and multiple projects. So you're going to start off in sort of those lower, you know, scientist positions where you're collecting a lot of the data, you're distilling it down to the meaningful way of pushing forward specific projects. Um, you know, sometimes a, a couple projects, like I was saying, sort of in like my role where, you know, collecting in several different things for different compounds, different areas, you know, you're working a lot with like other groups. And then those are then going towards people who are, you know, a little more senior sometimes verifying some of the data going through but those are the people who are then doing more talking with other heads at other departments you know trying to go through and making sure that you know the funding for your department you know so they're they're, they're now talking about you know moving from just like the project level and how that's going on to making sure you're, you're, you're working with the other departments, the other groups, making sure there's funding available for all the different projects that are needing to be, you know, pushed forward, you know, what's the sort of um, going through, they're the ones then verifying expensive purchases and things like that and moving through up to like senior, more senior, you know, levels and, you know, they're then pushing for the, the you know, direction of, of the company as a whole, like then making the decisions on to sort of what areas we're going to target, what are we going to start, you know, investing time and, and energy and, and money into actually researching. Are we going to, you know, are we going to research just, you know, oncology and cancer are we going to do pain are we going to do infectious disease are we going to do um um like you know any, are we going to do COVID? are we going to do something else like what what are we going to start spending money and time doing and so that's where you start getting in like the the, the highest level there what is the, the company going to do as a whole um but some of the other roles that are popping up and, and you'll see that shift over is there are some others where there is more because of the mass amounts of data that's coming in and you're starting to see and everyone you know hearing about data scientists and um, things like this and within um, R&D you have these roles as well because of the mass amounts of data that's coming in you've got some of these other people and there's like a, a hierarchical setup it there as well it's sort of parallel with like the researchers and the scientists where they're doing instead of you know they're they're also working through and working you know in conjunction with other people but working through making sure a lot of like modeling improving modeling improving capabilities of looking at multiple different drugs and compounds shifting things over to being more uh, driven by ai um what can you know, we do like in in this you know arena pushing and getting a lot more of the data sets and, and um, user like interface for this because you're going to have a lot of people who don't know how to use softwares and so making sure these things come out in a in a in a way that 
Other people can visually understand what the data means. What does all this modeling actually say? And so there's like this other set of people who are in that sort of data analytics avenue that are, um, you know, then transferring it over to other people. And this is all people who are within the, the, the R, you know, the research arm of somewhere. And then depending on the company, you're then going to have people who are over in the other areas of, of development who are working through and doing a lot more of the, the, the process sort of engineering of things going through and you know making sure whether or not we can you know develop these compounds like running things in like bioassays running things in there and you're having again and even in people over in in that avenue you're going to come into a more senior role there where you're not the one necessarily running the you know the bioreactors and building the compounds you're in charge of a group of people that are doing this and trying to make sure that you know everything's running properly and then doing you know qaqc with this areas you know quality assurance quality control making sure that the compound that's coming out is up to standard you know that it's you know it is pure that it's not adulterated in some way and you're getting enough of it to to run through to do experiments and, and to then you know be production ready to go through and, and do you know other larger assays so you're going through and doing like that and then moving through further into development and and how are we you know then enter you know taking our compounds taking our you know deliverables and marketing them to the the, the, the consumers either as a you know as a, as a drug or as a, you know, delivery method, you know, so depending on the company, you know, Gentec did a lot of these different things, you know, improving different in, in, injectables, improving different influence, improving different, you know, things that someone's gonna actually physically have in their hand or, you know, in their face. So not all the companies are gonna do this. Gentec was a larger one. So you've got teams that are working on making, you know, um, inhalant devices or making injectables or making actually other um, assay testing um, devices that are being used by in people and that that end user can be either a you know a, a lay person or somebody in a hospital running tests or running assays and making sure these things are you know easily just you know discerned by a person and being able to be used so these are people who are doing like you know as a user interface um researcher and making sure like that it's something that's understandable and easily done by somebody and even up to production and writing and making sure these things are all you know understand there's so so many roles within r&d that you can mm. you can you can go into Perfect. And if you are interested in getting specifically into an R&D role, uh, we do have an advanced program that Elliot is a part of as a program leader. The R&D Society was our, our first advanced program and uh, very popular. Lots of PhDs, of course, want to get into R&D. Um, a lot of what you've heard Elliot talk about, uh, either directly or indirectly, is the development side of R&D. That's really where a lot of the training for this program comes in. You know how to do research, but very few PhDs have any experience in the commercialization side, uh, the production side, like Elliot just brought up, distribution, like what happens to a treatment or a product or something you're working on in research or that you've been researching uh, once it goes past that innovation stage into commercialization, uh, once it quote unquote goes to market. And, and that's something that 
the program will train you on. And you'll, you'll definitely be tested on your knowledge there. And this is why a lot of PhDs fail to get into R&D because they don't take the D of R&D seriously. You may not have even considered that until I just said it. Last question I want to get to because we did bring it up just very quickly. Help us understand the role of publications. I think a lot of people, you know, all of us were trained, you know, publish or perish. It's so important. And I think a lot of us look at Genetech as a company that actually does publish, but I think it's important to also put publications in its place when it comes to an industry job search. Uh, you always have something, you know, I think you have a really good way of explaining its importance at different companies while also putting it in its place. So maybe we can end on that uh, briefly, Elliot. Yeah. Um, I'll basically start off by saying there definitely is still publishing within industry. Like, I think that's one of those things that people sort of think, oh, once you go to industry, publications die. Like, that is not true at all. Like, it's very misleading. And, you know, there's lots of really great examples in a lot of different companies. Just the, the, the way you're, you go about it is going to potentially be different. Like, you might not necessarily be writing as many articles. You might be writing books. You know, you might be writing more, um, NDA filings and FDA grant um, or FDA regulations and um, writing more, um, you know, medical descriptions of like compounds and stuff. But, you know, there's no, um, no healthy scientific community will hold, you know, prejudice against any sort of authors from industry. Actually, a lot of times you're going to, they're going to hold them higher standard than you would probably reading from somebody at a university like you go over and you see someone who is in an article and they're at a a, a company you're going to probably value that article more so than you would if you were reading from somebody at a university you know there's there's this unhealthy sort of you know clicks within all sorts of areas of, you know and, and you just have to get past that you know because when you're publishing an industry the writing process is, is different because you're, you can't release any sort of proprietary information. So you might have to have a paper go through a legal department, but that doesn't mean it's not going to get published. You're just not going to say we used this compound with this formula to do these things. You just have to be a little more general about it. And, you know, that's just, you have to just switch it up a little bit, you know, except for if you are doing a, a patent or, you know, um, um, FDA write-up, you're going to then write these things out specifically. But a lot of what's going on in, um, I was working on three different publications while I was at Genentech because there's lots of stuff that are going on. You're, you're still doing a lot of preliminary research there. You're still trying to go through and, and make sure, like, is this technique going to be better than what we've been doing standardly because we want to be able to improve processes as quickly as possible. And so you go through and say, all right, we did this prelim work comparing this method and this method and this method. And this one, you know, provided so much better results. And so we're going to go through that and we're going to you'll publish on that. And then the company might switch over to that new, to new technique. Um, so one of the most sort of reliable ways to this discern whether publishing is actually valuable to a company is just you can actually look up their recent sort of past history of like a particular division or you know department group or whatever and seeing whether or not they have released any publications because you could go to like google scholar and type in 
Genentech, and you'll probably you'll get tons of different publications there. You can type same thing, type in Merck or Biogen or Pfizer. You're going to see publications from people there, Eli Lilly, things like that. You know, and even sm smaller companies. You go over and you you go there. There's publications coming from people there all the time, and because this, this public this you know the publishing culture there, it's not it's not just built overnight. It's it's been there. They're there. You just aren't necessarily looking at it but it's definitely definitely there perfect well thank you very much elliot for coming on and to and for talking to us about all things r d uh, really enjoyed hearing your transition story hearing about how academic versus industry research is different and uh yeah really appreciate you opening up too about more difficult topics like imposter syndrome and, and kind of that sinking feeling that comes to all of us eventually in academia prior to our transition. Uh, so for those of you listening, lean into that, start your transition now. Uh, if you wanna learn more about uh, the Cheeky Scientist Association, which is our, our flagship program uh, that will help you figure out the right career path for you and give you the entire blueprint you need to transition into industry, you can go to phdsgethired.com, phdsgethired.com. If you wanna learn specifically about the R&D Society, which uh, I'm mentioning here just because we have this advanced uh, program for R&D uh, that Elliot is a part of, and we have incredible people uh, on the board of the R&D Society, including uh, a director from Regeneron, uh, people who are working at Novartis and Johnson & Johnson, uh, Genentech and beyond. Uh, you can go to the URL uh, programs.cheekyscientist.com. That's programs.cheekyscientist.com. And then it's just slash, so programs.cheekyscientist.com slash research dash and dash development dash society. Of course, if you just go to programs.cheekyscientist.com, you'll see all of our programs there. Uh, thank you all for, for being here. Thank you again, Elliot. As always, remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry I'm Isaiah Henkel, the founder of Cheeky Scientist and the creator of the Cheeky Scientist Association. I wanted to quickly tell you that memberships into the association are available to PhDs listening to Cheeky Scientist Radio by using the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's PhDs gethired.com, P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll down to the orange membership button and click on it, then enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. That's CheekyRadio, C-H-E-E-K-Y-R-A-D-I-O. Remember your value as a PhD and start thinking and acting like a successful industry professional. Are you worried about the rapidly shrinking job market? Like me, have you been seeing more and more articles on universities shutting down their research labs, furloughing employees, cutting postdocs and TAs, and even withdrawing PhD student funding? If so, it might be wise to start taking steps to protect your PhD career. You've worked very hard and very intelligently for years to establish yourself, but likely you have not reached your full career potential yet. Perhaps you're not even getting respect and you're not getting the rewards that you deserve. 
The good news is you can get into an industry career where you can get paid well for doing meaningful work. All you need is the right knowledge and the right network. The Cheeky Scientist Association gives you lifetime access to the world's number one PhD-only job search training platform with multiple courses and the PhD-only job referral network of over 10,000-plus industry PhDs. Now is your chance to become a lifetime member for 20% off of the association. Just use the coupon code CheekyRadio at www.phdsgethired.com. That's phdsgethired.com. P-H-D-S-G-E-T-H-I-R-E-D.com. Simply type phdsgethired.com into your website browser, scroll to the orange membership button, and click on it, and enter the coupon code CheekyRadio to get 20% off a lifetime membership now. No recurring monthly fees, no recurring annual fees. Nobody else offers this. PhDsGetHired.com. Use the coupon code CheekyRadio. Remember your value as a PhD, and remember that knowledge is power, and your network is your net worth. Oh, 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 oh